Welcome to the New Books Network. In his recent book, Chinese Esoteric Buddhism, Amalgavadra, the Ruling Elite, and the Emergence of a Tradition, Jeffrey Goebel examines the emergence and early history of esoteric Buddhism in China. In contrast to earlier scholarship, Goebel contends that it was really Amalgavadra, rather than the two patriarchs preceding him in the lineage, who systematized esoteric Buddhism into a somewhat internally coherent collection of texts and practices. Goebel looks at why the Tang period elite found Amalgavadra's system so attractive, which was in part due to esoteric Buddhism's military applications, and he also explores the way in which esoteric Buddhism managed to neatly fit into a larger system that Goebel calls imperial religion. In addition, he examines the reasons why there was some confusion after Amalgavadra's death as to whether or not his teachings constituted a distinct tradition. This book delves into political, military, and intellectual history to give us an account of the period that will be fascinating for anyone interested in Tang period Buddhism and for anyone interested more broadly in the relationships between religious traditions and elite patronage systems. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Jeffrey Goebel about his recent book, Chinese Esoteric Buddhism. Amalgavadra, The Ruling Elite, and the Emergence of a Tradition, published by Columbia University Press in 2019. Professor Goebel teaches in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and his research focuses on pre-modern Chinese Buddhism, particularly on Tantric Buddhism during the Tang period, and on the political, social, and historical contexts in which Buddhism developed into a powerful force in China. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. So to begin with, I'd like to ask how you came to the study of Chinese Buddhism and how you arrived at this particular topic, namely the monk Amalgavadra, esoteric Buddhism during the Tang period, and the relationship between esoteric Buddhism and the Chinese state. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I think any, any history, right, uh, depends on where you... Uh, where you start your narrative, I suppose there are a lot of places I could start um, with that story. Um, you know, I, I, I'll start. I'll start with the earliest uh, possibility, I guess. Uh, when I was a small child, I was. Uh, uh, my parents took me and my my sisters to a Unitarian church, and our religious education in in that church um, was not, uh, I suppose, Christian really in orientation. We were really exposed to. Uh, world religions, beliefs from uh, all sorts of different religious traditions. And I, and I found it just absolutely fascinating um, to think about uh, ideas such as reincarnation, rebirth, and things like that at a very young age. And, and you know, as, you know, as a child, I really enjoyed uh, mythology. I had uh, Dallaire's Greek myths, I think, like a lot of other folks, and I just read it cover to cover over and over again. Um, later on in life, I guess I was around you know, 13, 14 years old, I guess, um, a friend of my mother's gave her a copy of the uh, the Tao of Pooh, uh, and I may be among the last generations to have uh, been exposed to Chinese religions through that particular uh, book. But uh, I got my hands on it and, and read it, and, and found the, uh, the the Taoist, the Chinese ideas presented uh, therein to be just really, really fascinating and unlike anything that I was familiar with you know, growing up in uh, Middle America. Um, so I had a really long-standing interest in religion generally, and of uh, Chinese uh, religions in particular. Um, and I developed that interest uh, as an undergraduate student, and then uh, continued to pursue it uh, at the graduate level. Um, 
at uh, the University of Virginia. I did my master's work there. And, um, this was in 2003, 2004, I think. Um, I had the good fortune to uh, take a grad seminar uh, on Tantric Buddhism that was led by Paul Groner and David Germano. Um, really fascinating class. Um, we had the guiding question of, uh, or the issue of defining Tantra or Tantric Buddhism. And this idea or this question about whether the concept of Tantra was itself uh, anachronistic, whether it was a post-hoke analytic concept, or whether it actually designated some self-aware movement. Um, and I think these are questions that uh, we're still kind of wrestling with in particular ways. But also in that course, uh, along with that uh, kind of guiding question, uh, we were introduced to cross-cultural iterations of this thing that we call Tantra or Tantric Buddhism. So looking at Tantric forms of Buddhism in Tibet, of course, as well as uh, in East Asia, particularly China and Japan. And, and that's where I was uh, exposed to and learned about um, the East Asian and specifically the Chinese iteration of um, Tantric Buddhism or Esoteric Buddhism, as it's typically referred to um, in its East Asian form. Um, and there I learned about kind of the central figures of this tradition, uh, Shubhakara Singha, uh, Vajrabodhi, and Amoga Vajra. These are big people who lived in the 7th and 8th centuries of Tang Dynasty China. And also the uh, question that kind of animated the field um, as to whether or not um, the scriptures and practices that those men uh, presented in China were received as a new and identifiably discrete teaching, or if the perception of this Chinese Buddhism, uh, Chinese esoteric Buddhism, is an anachronistic post-hoc category. Um, so that was my first exposure to Amogavadra and the idea of uh, Chinese esoteric Buddhism anyway. Um, and because I had an interest in Chinese uh, religions in general, Chinese Buddhism in particular, I, I developed a research paper for that uh, seminar course focusing on the person of Amogavadra, who was, I think, the most important, clearly the most important, or at least the best documented of the three supposed patriarchs of uh, esoteric Buddhism in China. And so that was my first kind of foray into uh, this topic. But I, um, I developed it further um, in my PhD work at uh, Indiana University. Um, and, and, and thinking about that, I, I kind of had to think about first the question of whether or not there was a contemporary Chinese representation of Buddhism associated with those men, and it became clear to me that there was. Um, uh, but as I thought about this, the question kind of developed a, um, another question. And the question was, why was he so successful? Um, so to my thinking, the fact that other people understood Amogavadra to possess a new and valuable Buddhist teaching was much more significant, I think, than whether Amogavadra himself thought about it in this way. So as I thought about this as a graduate student uh, at IU, um, I realized that in order to address this other question, why was he so significant? Why was he so popular? Why was he so um, important? Um, I realized that it was necessary for me to more fully understand the social, cultural, and political milieu in which Amoga Butcher operated, in which his patrons worked as well, and in which his uh, Buddhist teaching was put into practice. Um, so looking at that milieu, thinking about the imperial family, the central government, the bureaucratic elite, and the military elite, um, hopefully, I, I think I've come up with some satisfying answers to some of those basic questions that started way back when I was a master's student at uh, the University of Virginia.
Great. Thanks for that. Actually, I grew up Unitarian Universalist, so I can <laughs> to relate to the story. Uh, so you note that the traditional view has been the esoteric, uh, that esoteric Buddhism in China, conceived of as a distinct tradition, um, was created by these three legendary masters, uh, Shubha, Karasimha, Vajrabodhi, and Amogavadra. However, in this book, you argue that it was, in fact, Amogavadra who first created or systematized esoteric Buddhism as a self-aware, separate school or lineage. So could you explain your argument here and, um, and how it differs from the received view? Sure. Um, so the received view or maybe the traditional view um, I think it was essentially established by Japanese scholars in the late 19th and early 20th century. And that view is that esoteric Buddhism was transmitted to China from India uh, by those three men, Shubhakarasinga, Vajrabodhi, and Mogavadra. Again, these are folks who were living in the uh, um, 7th and 8th centuries. Um, and so the idea was that these men transmitted uh, this Buddhist teaching from India to China and that Amogavadra in particular uh, transmitted the teaching uh, to his Chinese disciples, who in turn transmitted it to uh, Kukai in the ninth century. Um, and that then Kukai went on to establish this teaching in Japan as the Shingon, or the uh, mantra school of Buddhism there. Um, so the traditional view, you know, the received view, is uh, kind of a patriarchal lineage model of Buddhist teaching um, that's based largely, I think, on a post-hoc analysis of historical sources and also on assuming the normativity of Japanese models of Buddhist sectarianism. Um, this, this kind of received view uh, has been challenged uh, by scholars who, who've asserted that there was no locally recognized Chinese iteration of esoteric Buddhism along the lines of the Shingon school, and that instead China's esoteric Buddhism is simply anachronistic uh, post-hoc of construct based on these later sources. Um, but in my view, I, I think if, if our question is whether the teachings were recognized as a distinct school or, or teaching in China uh, contemporary, or, excuse me, contemporaneously with uh, Shubhakarasinga, Vajrabodhi, and Amogavadra, or if our question is whether those men understood themselves to possess such a new discrete Buddhist teaching, then I think both of these models, both the sort of the, the transmission lineage model and uh, perhaps the, uh, the the suspicious model of, of doubting whether this actually was uh, an historical construct, I think both of those models are to a degree incorrect. Um, as I look at the textual evidence concerning uh, those three uh, patriarchs, so-called Shubhakarasinga, Vajrabodhi, and Amogavadra, um, and looking at uh, sources that are contemporary with their lives, I don't really see any evidence to support the conclusion that uh, Shubhak Kasinga uh, understood himself, or perhaps more importantly, was understood by his contemporaries to possess and transmit a distinct teaching. Um, there is some indication of the possibility, I think, that Vajra Bodhi understood himself uh, in this way, that he understood himself as possessing and, and propagating a uh, sectarian form of uh, Buddhist teaching. And also some suggestion, perhaps, that others may have also seen him this way. But the evidence, uh, again, is, is very, very limited, um, which, to my mind, uh, suggests that if Vajrabodhi did think of himself and his Buddhism in this way, that it wasn't a view that was widely shared. Um, 
On the other hand, though, uh, there's really an abundance of contemporaneous material produced by and about Amogavadra. And, and on my reading of these sources, um, these indicate that Amogavadra did represent himself to others as possessing a new sectarian teaching of the Buddha. And, and I think perhaps more significantly, um, this was also accepted and recognized by his contemporaries, his patrons, his disciples, as well as by succeeding generations of exegetes and scholiasts. Amogavadra um, uh, typically referred to the teaching that he possessed and that, that he propagated in China as the teaching of the five divisions, uh, the teaching of the diamond pinnacle, the teaching of yoga, or some combination of those terms. And his disciples, uh, his contemporaries, and later uh, exegetes and commentators, they adopted the same terminology to refer to this teaching. Um, so this, I think, argues that uh, Amogavadra was, uh, at the time and after his, his death in 744, was understood to uh, possess and propagate a, a particular, a discrete teaching of the Buddha. But the matter is a little bit complicated because, um, uh, first of all, Vajrabodhi was known to have been Amogavadra's lineal master. Um, and second of all, Amogavadra also incorporated scriptures that were produced by or under the aegis of uh, Shubhakarasinga in Chinese. He incorporated these into what he referred to as the teaching of the five divisions. So from one perspective, I think it is fair to say that esoteric Buddhism was transmitted to China by Shubhakarasinga, Vajrabodhi, and Amogavadra, insofar as uh, all three of these men made contributions to to this thing that I think we can call esoteric Buddhism. However, this, this view is only possible by virtue of the fact that Amogavadra established the teaching as an identifiable Buddhist uh, school, as it were, among his contemporaries and uh, among succeeding generations. So to put it another way, I guess, um, I would suggest that esoteric Buddhism as a teaching associated with Shubhakarasinga, Vajrabodhi, and Amogavadra it exists as an object of historical consciousness, both for us and for uh, historical Chinese authors, because, because of Amogavadra's career and because of his accomplishments. So from this perspective, the significance of Shubhakarasinga and Vajrabodhi are effectively a, uh, a retroactive assessment according to the work of Amogavadra, in my view. Right. Now, that's really interesting. The now, in, in in your answer to that question, you uh, mentioned the Diamond Pinnacle scripture, which um, you point out it was really central to um, Amogavadra's sort of system. Um, and along with that, there were four other texts, so five texts in total that he sort of identified as central to his teachings. So why, um, why was this Diamond Pinnacle uh, scripture so important? And what was the... Um, and, and and you point out also that um, these texts weren't necessarily didn't necessarily uh, constitute a kind of coherent system um, without some sort of systematizing. So, what what was the relationship between these five texts? What was their character, and why was the Diamond Pinnacle Scripture so important? Sure. Well, I'll I'll start with the relationship. Um, yeah, the uh, the relationship between these texts. Um, was effectively established by Amogavadra. Uh, to my knowledge, there isn't any other uh, iteration of tantric or esoteric Buddhism that 
places these five scriptures um, together within a single teaching. So it appears that this grouping of five texts um, was the invention of Amogabhadra. Um, in terms of their content, um, from one perspective, we could we can identify or discern particularly particular continuities uh, among or across them. Uh, so, for example, you do see kind of a consistent assumption of the efficacy uh, or the centrality of ritual performances involving mandala deities, mudra performance, mantra recitation, uh, fire offerings or homa offerings, um, and so forth. But um, these sort of continuities uh, aside, they, they do seem to be uh, rather rather different uh, and, and perhaps even from sort of different um, phases in the uh, kind of long durée uh, development of tantric Buddhism uh, in India. Um, so um, one of the reasons why they do appear to be from kind of different strata, as I suggest, is that whereas the diamond pinnacle scripture, for example, is characterized by uh, pentatic uh, or five-fold uh, organizational patterns, uh, five divisions, five Buddhas, five directions, these sort of things, um, uh, many of the other texts, uh, say the Great Virochana Scripture, for example, uh, this is the best example of this, is characterized by a, a triadic or a tripartite um, organizational principle. So instead of five families that you see in the Diamond Pinnacle, you have three. Um, and scholars tend to uh, understand this to represent, uh, again, kind of different strata or periods of development with the kind of the, the, the triadic arrangements of the great Virochana scripture coming from an earlier period, whereas the pentatic arrangements uh, from the diamond pinnacle uh, being a, a bit later on. Um, but when we look at these five texts, um, we do see uh, kind of some, some differences as well as I think some continuities as I suggest. So the five texts, the diamond pinnacle, uh, the great Virochana scripture, the Susidikara scripture, the questions of Subahu scripture and the true Samaya, these are the five. Um, of these five, the, yeah, as you, as, you, as you note, as I point out in the book, the uh, Diamond Pinnacle scripture is, for Mogabhadra, the most important of these. Um, and this is clearly marked by the fact that Mogabhadra refers to his overall teaching with reference to this scripture. He calls it uh, the Diamond Pinnacle teaching. Um, and so, yeah, this Diamond Pinnacle scripture uh, was centrally important to Mogabhadra and uh, the Buddhist teaching that he uh, presented in China. Um, I suggest, and, and other scholars have suggested something similar, um, that the Diamond Pinnacle is really, really significant because, uh, among other things, it uh, presents a refiguration of Shakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha. Um, and in this refiguration, this kind of retelling of the kind of Buddha myth, the founding myth of the greater Buddhist tradition. The Diamond Pinnacle scripture um, indicates that, uh, well, for Shakyamuni and by extension, Buddhist practitioners uh, are able to attain uh, awakening as the result of uh, initiations or consecration procedures, ritual procedures of consecration, as well as uh, visualization and recitative practices. Um, the scripture says that Shakyamuni did all these things in the uh, company and the company of Virochana Buddha uh, in the uh, Akanista heaven. Um, but again, I, I suggest that in this retelling of the Shakyamuni myth, this scripture effectively reworks the larger uh, Buddhist tradition 
to argue for the uh, soteriological and mundane efficacy of ritual um, over other sorts of practices. Um, yeah, so I'll just put it another way, yeah, these soteriological practices or these, or these soteriological accomplishments, I should say, are keyed to ritual procedures of initiation, visualization, um, and the text uh, outlines some of these procedures. Um, the Great Virochina scripture, um, this was actually a text that uh, was produced by Shivakarasimha in, in China. It was not uh, a text uh, translated by Moghavadra or his translation team. Um, however, some of the hagiographic uh, sources concerning Moghavadra say that he was uh, initiated into or consecrated in the teaching of this great Virochina scripture while he was in the southern Indic regions. Um, this is possibly, if not probably, a sort of pious fiction meant to explain um, why or how Moghavadra was authorized to incorporate this earlier scripture into the teaching. Um, but in any case, in terms of the uh, content of that text, um, it partially outlines uh, a different mandala, uh, the Wum mandala, um, which is really well known in, from the Shingon tradition. Um, uh, and the text also delineates uh, the performance of Homa rites for the production of particular effects, or siti. Um, and these uh, are classified as pacification, augmentation, subjugation, and attraction uh, rites. So the Susadikara, yeah, that's the third uh, scripture. And this is another, uh, effectively, a, pract a practice manual that's delivered in the form of a sutra. Uh, and this text was also translated by Shukrasinga in China. Um, this text is rather different from the, from the first two that I, that I mentioned, uh, insofar as it's marked by the centrality of wrathful deities. Um, so, for example, this scripture is not uh, spoken by uh, by Rochino or a, a kind of refigured Shakyamuni. Instead, it's the teaching is delivered by Vajradhara. And uh, Vajradhara gives this teaching in response to a question not from uh, Avalokiteshvara or some other uh, well-known uh, Pacific uh, Buddhist figure, but by uh, the wrathful Kundali. Um, so you see a lot of more wrathful deities in this text. Um, and also um, the kind of theme of this scripture, of the Susidikara scripture, is uh, the laying out of uh, requisite ritual forms in order to produce particular siddhi, um, that uh, different kind of details of the ritual performance would vary in order to produce uh, different outcomes. Um, the fourth uh, text is, is similar um, in some ways. Uh, this is the questions of Subahu. Um, this is another uh, essentially practice manual that's in the form of a sutra. And it was also translated by Shubhakrasinga in China. Um, and here again, we see kind of a, an emphasis or a, a concern with a siddhi or the effects uh, or outcomes of ritual performance. And the, the question of this text, or the question that motivates the text is why it is that some practitioners may fail to realize uh, particular uh, ritual outcomes. And the answer given uh, tends to concern the, the, the proper ritual format and details of ritual performance. Um, and this is all uh, given or taught uh, by Vajrapani, this kind of long-standing violent protector figure in the larger Buddhist tradition. Um, but this text goes into great detail or further detail about 
uh, ritual performance. And there's a lot of information, for example, about uh, what kind of Vajra as a ritual implement one should use, the dimensions, the material, and so forth. The last of these five texts, the Trisamaya, this, this scripture actually was translated by Amogavadra in, in China. Um, and this text, uh, the central concern is how to eliminate hindrances. Um, these hindrances or these hinderers uh, may be subjective afflictions or deficiencies that are well known to the larger Buddhist tradition. Um, but the text also goes into great detail describing the ritual means of eliminating external hindrances, such as ghosts, uh, malevolent entities, and even um, human uh, enemies. And here, uh, the Trisamaya scripture really uh, is marked by, I think, more so than the others, marked by kind of a, a turn toward or an emphasis on uh, the violent. Um, uh, one of the central figures, if not the central figure of this text is, is Achala, um, a figure represented in this text as being uh, extremely ferocious and um, capable of uh, eliminating any, any hindrances that one might encounter up to and including uh, human enemies. So again, these texts, uh, I think that in their details are, are quite various, but um, Hamogavadra having placed them together uh, side by side in this uh, tradition, we're, I think we're able to discern certain continuities and maybe even a certain logic behind why Mogavatra uh, used these texts as central to his, his teaching. That is, we see throughout these texts um, not only kind of a mythological basis for the practice of esoteric Buddhism, but also a lot of details about how to do it, uh, the ritual forms, the procedures for consecration, and so on and so forth. Now, in chapter two, you address the religious, ritual, and ideological context in which esoteric Buddhism emerged and gained prominence. And central to this is something you call imperial religion. What exactly is imperial religion, and how can we speak of it as a single thing? Yeah, so, yeah, you're right that imperial religion is um, uh, a term that I'm putting forward. It's, uh, it's an analytic category or referring to or circumscribing and discussing the religious uh, and ritual observations of the Tang central government. And this is, um, and I think, an important analytic category or term for what I want to do because Amogavadra's patrons included uh, high-ranking officials in the central government, members of the imperial family, and sitting emperors as well. And their patronage of Amogavadra, uh, particularly that of the emperors, it all occurred within the framework of the Tang imperial state and its religious or ritual practices. Um, in addition to that, Amogavadra himself was appointed um, in the bureaucracy. He was a special minister in the Bureau of State Ceremonials, which was the office in the central government that was charged with overseeing the religious and ritual performances of the Tang state. Um, so to put it another way, uh, simply Amogavadra's esoteric Buddhism was uh, incorporated within and according to the institutions and practices of the Tang imperial state within this complex that I'm referring to as imperial religion. Now, as far as what imperial religion designates or circumscribes, um, this was a, a heterogeneous collection of observations that were drawn from a variety of sources. So from um, ancient precedent or what we might refer to as Confucian tradition, or official tradition. Um, as well as from Taoist traditions and, and, and Buddhism as well. And, and I think sometimes when we think about uh, 
say these different religious traditions in, in China, we we sometimes assume a competitive non-zero sum relationship between them, especially between Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism at the imperial level. And I think this is understandable given that the historical sources sometimes suggest this and and also because the tenets and principles of these traditions, they often appear to, to be mutually exclusive. Um, but as I look at the historical sources, it, it's really clear to me that these different traditions were not mutually exclusive uh, within the context of the Tang central government. Um, so the ad, the ad, excuse me, the adoption of um, Mogavadra's esoteric Buddhism by the Tang emperors and officials didn't entail the diminishment or abrogation of other ritual traditions that were constituent of this thing that I'm referring to as imperial religion. So if, if it is composed of all these different religious uh, traditions or ritual forms, how is it uh, understood to be single sort of thing? How do I think about it as a single thing? I'd suggest here that, you know, although the, the different ritual traditions that made up uh, what I'm calling imperial religion uh, were based on different worldviews, um, their performances were all united in uh, the intended or the promised effects or outcomes. Um, and these were most basically the safeguarding of the Tang state and the imperial family. So uh, whether a particular ritual performed by or on behalf of the state was drawn from official or Confucian tradition, from Taoist sources, from Buddhist sources, or, or wherever. Uh, these rituals that were performed by or at the command of the central government were consistently, and I think clearly done so, in order to prevent uh, political disasters of any sort, whether they be meteorological, astrological, or, or military in nature, um, and also to preserve the life and longevity of the imperial family. So, um, on my view, I think it makes sense to conceptualize imperial religion as a singular thing um, on the basis of its uh, perceived utility, or maybe to put it another way, uh, according to the purpose or the effects of the, uh, the various rites enjoined and observed by the imperial state. Um, now, part of your question was also, uh, what the, what's the relationship then between esoteric Buddhism and imperial religion? How does esoteric Buddhism fit into this complex, this thing that I'm referring to as imperial religion. Um, yeah, Mogavadra and, and his, his, his Buddhism, his esoteric Buddhism, they, as I said, they were, they were placed in the employ of the state. Um, and this was by virtue of the fact that many of his patrons were, were influential members of the central government and emperors as well. Um, and many of these people were patrons of Mogavadra before they ascended to their uh, positions of power. But once they were promoted to the central government, their um, dedication to Mogavedra became, I think, de facto official. Um, again, as I mentioned before, Mogavedra was himself appointed to a central government agency responsible for overseeing and conducting ritual service for the state. So esoteric Buddhism did, I think, become a part, an important component of this larger imperial religion complex. And, and kind of getting toward this question of the relationship between the two, um, one of the questions that scholars have uh, asked scholars who've looked at this sort of material in the past have asked and thought about was why Amogavadra was so successful. Why was it that his Buddhism and he were incorporated into um, imperial religion? And a common explanation for this was that Amogavadra modified or adapted Indic source material uh, 
to accord with the sociocultural milieu in which he operated or that he cinified um, tantric Buddhism, or he cinified uh, this esoteric Buddhism. But when I look at the, the practices and scriptures that Amogavadra uh, was engaging in, that he was putting forward, it, it, it's clear to me, anyway, that uh, these materials are all Indic in their origin and in their performance. Um, and I really don't see any evidence of cinification or adaptation. So I don't really feel that theory is compelling. It doesn't really explain uh, why or how esoteric Buddhism was incorporated or became a part of this imperial religion complex. Um, so, for example, one of the central practices of esoteric Buddhism was um, was Homa, or a fire offering ritual. Um, and when we look at the details of these performances, it, it's clear that these are consistent with contemporaneous as well as precedent uh, Indic ritual norms. Um, and I think that this uh, kind of emphasis on efficacy, this, uh, this uh, emphasis on outcomes, was really crucial for the adoption of esoteric Buddhism within uh, the imperial religion context. Right? Because um, Amogavadra, he consistently emphasizes the practical outcomes of his esoteric Buddhist uh, practice, uh, that is the siti, um, in his communications with the various emperors and, and high-ranking patrons that he has. He, he always refers to the tradition, or he frequently refers to the tradition in reference to these, these outcomes, these seedings. And these effects were generally categorized by Amogavadra, um, kind of there are variations, right? But generally he refers to four kind of classes of outcomes or effects. And these are pacification, quelling, augmentation, subjugation, and attraction. So um, for example, uh, a ritual that was performed in a particular way uh, would be intended to and kind of predicted to or expected to produce, uh, uh, say, attraction, uh, CD or attraction effects. And so this could be quite various, actually. I mean, it could involve the attraction of, uh, of a lover, for example, or uh, the attraction of uh, loyal allies, right, uh, which would be a political benefit to, to the patron, um, as well as uh, pacification, right? So the quelling of disasters, right? Meteorological disasters, for example, agrarian disasters, for example, um, as well as um, say augmentation. And these augmentation rights could result in kind of augmenting one's one's wealth, uh, one's status, uh, or even one's longevity. Um, so when I look at the kind of uh, esoteric Buddhism from the perspective of Kind of the intended effects. It, it seems to me that these effects were were uh, continuous with, if not frequently identical with, the intended outcomes or effects of the rituals performed by and for the imperial Tang state. Um, so, to put it another way, uh, the siti, the outcomes or effects of esoteric Buddhist practice, they aligned with the intended outcomes of imperial uh, religion. Um, and so, although the practice of esoteric Buddhism uh, was really, really different, I think, from those of indigenous Chinese uh, rites that informed the imperial religious context. Um, in their intended or their kind of expected results or outcomes, esoteric Buddhism was, as I said, continuous, if not identical, uh, with those other practices. And what exactly was the relationship between esoteric Buddhism and imperial religion? In terms of the uh, relationship between esoteric Buddhism and imperial religion, um, yeah, I think it's really important to note, again, that Amogavadra and his esoteric Buddhism were placed 
in the employ of the state by virtue of the fact that many of its patrons were influential members um, of the Tang central government or emperors themselves. Um, and many of these people were patrons of Amogavadra before they ascended to these official positions of great power, but once promoted to the central government, their personal relationship or devotion or dedication or patronage to Amogavadra became at least de facto official. Um, but in addition to this, right, Amogavadra himself was appointed to the central government agency that was responsible for overseeing and conducting uh, ritual services for the state. Um, so as a result of these developments, esoteric Buddhism uh, effectively became uh, an important component of this larger uh, imperial religion complex. And, you know, one of the questions that scholars uh, have asked previously um, about this material is, is why Amogavadra was so successful. Why was it that uh, he uh, attained such uh, you know, privilege or power within the central government? Why was it that esoteric Buddhism came to be incorporated into um, what I'm referring to as, uh, as imperial religion? And, um, earlier scholars um, have suggested that, uh, that this, was, this was so because Amogavadra had modified or somehow adapted is index source material to the uh, sociocultural milieu uh, of Tang China, just put it simply that he sinified um, his esoteric Buddhism. But when I look at uh, when I look at this material, um, I look at the actual practices and the scriptures, uh, the ritual manuals and such that Amogavadra uh, produced and that represent his esoteric Buddhism. It's really clear to me that these materials are are indic uh, in origin. I don't really see any. Any evidence of sinification or adaptation. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the central practices of esoteric Buddhism, perhaps the central practice, arguably, um, in, in any case, one that was put into practice by the Tang central government was uh, Homa or fire offering rituals. Um, and these were, the, in their details, these rituals were consistent with um, contemporaneous and precedent uh, Indic ritual forms. Um, but in his communications with uh, his patrons, particularly with the emperors, Amogavadra, he, he consistently emphasizes the uh, practical outcomes of esoteric Buddhism, uh, or Siti. Um, and these effects were generally categorized by Amogavadra. Um, there are different uh, categories that he puts forward, but he generally categorizes in, in, in four classes or groups, uh, pacification, augmentation, subjugation, and attraction. So for example, um, rituals, Homo rituals that were performed uh, for the purposes of producing uh, attraction effects or outcome or CD um, would be various. Uh, this might include um, attracting a lover, for example. Um, it might involve uh, the attraction of loyal allies. In that regard, it would be, I point out, politically useful. Um, other of these CD, uh, so for example, pacification. Um, again, these were various in their details, but uh, among these pacification rites would be rituals uh, intended to or uh, expected to pacify or quell or eliminate um, meteorological or agrarian disasters, for example. Um, augmentation rites would, uh, among other things, be performed with the, with the promise of augmenting the uh, performers or the patrons, more often, uh, the patrons' uh, lifespan or wealth. And so um, in these regards, when we look at the CD, 
the outcomes of esoteric Buddhist ritual practice, uh, I, I see that they're really, really continuous, if not frequently identical, with the uh, intended uh, ritual outcomes of, of the imperial religion complex. Um, so just to kind of sum this up or put it in, in other words, um, the CD or the effects of esoteric Buddhism, they aligned with the intended outcomes of imperial uh, religion ritual practices. So although the practice of esoteric Buddhism was, I think, markedly different from those of the established uh, rites of imperial religion at the time, in their intended or their predicted results, esoteric Buddhism was uh, continuous, uh, if not, again, identical with those practices. So you state that the Anlushan Rebellion created the opportunity for Amalgavadra to rise to prominence. How exactly did this happen, and why was Amalgavadra's esoteric Buddhism so attractive to the ruling elite? Yeah, so, yeah, the, the Anlushan Rebellion, um, it began officially late in 755, um, and Anlushan uh, himself died uh, early the, the, the following year, but the rebellion continued and actually spawned a number of other uh, rebellions and military challenges to the Tang that really um, didn't settle down until, I mean, significantly until 765. Of course, there were there were other issues that developed after 765, but yeah, this period from 755 to 765, about that 10-year span, um, was really characterized by uh, rebellion um upheaval, um, military threat to Tang rule. And, and I think it was really, really significant to Amogavadra's uh, eventual rise to prominence and the incorporation of him and his Buddhism um, in the government. Um, and so the, this, what I'm referring to as the rebellion period or shorthanding in the Anlushan Rebellion, um, it was really significant because, uh, among other things, it resulted in an almost immediate political transformation at the highest reaches Tang state. Um, so the era, the, the, the ruling emperor, um, Emperor Xunzong, um, fled the capital uh, for Sichuan. The heir apparent uh, went to the, um, went up to the northwest, um, and Xunzong abdicated, and the heir apparent assumed the throne. Uh, his temple name, his posthumous name is Suzong. Um, so Suzong becomes emperor. Uh, Su Zong's wife becomes empress. Um, various officials in the orbit of Su Zong uh, rise uh, in 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 the government, right? Um, and these these men who became members of Su Zong's government uh, continued with his successor, Emperor Dai Zong. Um, so the the in the first place, the the rebellion created a, a radical shift in um, in the actual administration. Uh, and, and power structure, I think, of the Tang government. Um, so, yeah, part of Mogavajra's rise, I think, was circumstantial because it, it, it was the case that um, the heir apparent, the man who became Emperor Suzong, uh, was a patron disciple of Mogavajra while heir apparent. And so, too, were a, a number of the military and bureaucratic elite who were stationed in the, uh, in the Northwest where uh, Suzong uh, fled in the face of a rebel advance on the capital of Chang'an. Um, so some of it was circumstantial. Um, when uh, the government changed, uh, it, it changed into a government that was uh, frequently populated by uh, people who had longstanding relationships um, with Amogavadra. But this kind of 
kicks the can down the road, and as it were, right? I mean, uh, it raises the question of why these people would have been his patrons in the first place. Why were members of the imperial family, the bureaucratic elite, and maybe particularly the members of the military elite, uh, why would they be adherents of a Pateric group? Why would they be attracted to a Mogabhadra uh, in the first place? And, and I think one answer to this question is that um, Mogabhadra uh, offered ritual technologies that promised mundane results that were, I think, often oriented toward the concerns of lay adherence. So I was discussing previously these CD, these outcomes, um, one of which, say, attraction, CD, um, for the gaining of lovers, right? Uh, or augmentation rights for increasing one's wealth, right? These are these are outcomes uh, that uh, I understand to be appealing to the laity, and particularly perhaps uh, lay people who are in you know, positions of privilege within uh, their society. Um, so I think this emphasis on mundane outcomes uh, rather than strictly soteriological uh, results was part of the attraction for um, these elite uh, lay patrons. But I think in addition to that, uh, as a, Esoteric Buddhism, as put forward by Mogavadra, is also in part characterized by uh, what I would characterize as uh, an, an ethical laxity, right? Um, we find in some of the scriptures and ritual manuals uh, put forward by Mogavadra really clear instruction that even those who have committed great sins, and even those who, who don't have any interest in reforming themselves or don't have any interest in pursuing any sort of soteriological goal, um, such as awakening for oneself or the liberation of others, right? Even, even such people as these um, are specifically said to be allowed into the teaching. Um, and it's specified that they be allowed into the teaching so that they can use the teaching, so they can pursue it uh, in pursuit of material gain as well as carnal pleasures. Um, so I think that this was really, uh, really important, right? Uh, esoteric Buddhism, as presented by Mogabhadra, uh, promised uh, outcomes that were, I think, appealing to members of the bureaucratic and military ruling elite. Um, it did not require them to, I think, uh, change their aspirations or to significantly change their behaviors, um, such that... Uh, members of the Tang military, and there were many members of the Tang military who were adherents of esoteric Buddhism and patrons of Mogavadra, these men could continue to be uh, military leaders, could continue to uh, uh, continue their pursuit uh, to eliminate and, and kill the uh, enemies of the Tang state without it interfering with their Buddhist practice within this tradition. Um, and I think also along those lines, I, I, it's also very significant, I think, that um, Part of these outcomes uh, were, were, were rituals that uh, were intended or promised to bring about the, uh, the subjugation of enemies, right? The subjugation rights, these uh, abhichara uh, rights, um, according to which uh, one could perform these rituals or more often have them performed on one's behalf and would result in the death of one's enemies, uh, either individually or in large numbers. Um, and this death could come through a variety of forms, disease, disaster, um, disloyal ministers, so on and so forth, right? But Amogavadra uh, offered these members of the ruling elite, uh, I think, a ritual tradition 
that promised them outcomes that would be particularly appealing, that did not require them to radically change uh, their their lives. And furthermore, uh, I think, uh, and then in this regard, esoteric Buddhism was unique, uh, offered a ritual uh, technology that promised the ability to kill enemies, to kill human enemies, again, either individually in or in large numbers. And during this time, the, uh, the time of the Anlishan Rebellion, um, this, I think, was uh, an outcome that would be particularly appealing to members of the Tang elite, uh, a ritual tradition that promised the ability to kill enemies. Um, and the, the, the evidence suggests that, or it indicates that, uh, Amogavajra was employed for exactly that purpose, that he was employed to perform rituals in order to uh, kill enemies of the Tang state. Yeah, I remember you mentioned that he was even attached to um, not exactly military units, but sort of military headquarters at one point. Um, uh, And also, I should mention for listeners, you have some very interesting um, descriptions of uh, these sort of lethal, esoteric uh, Buddhist sort of rituals and texts, and you compare them with some very interesting um, um, Taoist, for example, uh, rituals and texts that do promise uh, martial success, but not through, but through strengthening um, the attacking, the forces uh, that are going to attack, rather than sort of having the ritual itself, the sort of Taoist power, as it were, um, directly kill the enemy. Um, now, I, j- j- I want to move on now to um, to the sort of uh, understanding of Amalgavadra um, after and sort of his project after his death. Um, and um, and for listeners, I should mention that you go into a lot of uh, detail about Tong military and civil bureaucracy um, to give us some understanding, to give us the understanding that we uh, need in order to sort of understand how Amalgavadra and his disciples gained uh, such bureaucratic power. Um, and that was impressive to me because I think a lot of Buddhist scholars just wouldn't touch that or wouldn't be aware of that. So, but going on to his legacy, you state that Amogavadra and his disciples, um, that as they became part of the ruling institutions, their ritual activity and their textual productions spread beyond those rites and scriptures that we'd normally uh, categorize as esoteric Buddhism, and that this new reality in which they're sort of also associated with texts and rituals that we don't think of esoteric. That, along with Zanning's uh, depiction of Amalgavadra after the latter's death, led to this confusion about Amalgavadra, and um, specifically as to whether his practices, beliefs, and textual corpus, uh, which I was surprised to find out was second only to Xuanzang's, uh, whether whether his whether he represented a distinct esoteric Buddhism, or whether he was simply a um, you know, Buddhist practitioner who also practiced these um, sort of esoteric rites. And so could you kind of explain the, uh, the source of that confusion and maybe uh, the result of it in, um, in a Chinese understanding of Amagavadra after his death? Sure. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to recognize that um, possessing or propagating a sectarian teaching, a sectarian Buddhist teaching in in the Tang um, 
which was informed in part by controlled access via initiation procedures and promises of secrecy. Um, this did not uh, prohibit Amogabhadra or his disciples from practicing other forms or other teachings within the larger uh, Buddhist tradition. Um, and I think it's also important to note that uh, Amogabhadra and his monastic, monastic disciples were, they were effectively servants of the Tang state. Uh, they were in the employ of the emperors, uh, technically. Um, and so many of the things they did were in the service of establishing and propagating the teaching of the five divisions or of esoteric Buddhism. But not everything that they did uh, was in, in this service. Not everything they did, not everything that Omogavajra did was representative of this teaching. Right? Um, and I think this is clear not only from the content of, um, of, of various texts that uh, Omogavajra produced, um, but also... Uh, or I should say, maybe another way, that his, his, his textual corpus is heterogeneous. Um, that is to say that some of the texts that he uh, translated or that he produced in China are representative of what I'm referring to as esoteric Buddhism, while others are representative of mainstream Mahayana or early spell Dharani traditions. And, and when Amogavadra submits um, his, uh, his corpus of text to the, to the throne um, in, in the month preceding his death in 744, he, he, he clearly indicates that his textual corpus is heterogeneous. He says that some of these texts are, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says some of these texts represent the teaching of the five divisions, the teaching of the diamond pentacle, that is esoteric Buddhism, and some of these represent Mahayana Buddhism, right? So Mahogavadra's activities were not strictly limited to the production, propagation, and performance of esoteric Buddhism. It also invo involved kind of more traditional or maybe mainstream uh, forms of Buddhism, right? Because, again, in his capacity as a servant of the Tang, Amogavadra, he translated and also retranslated scriptures that were clearly not representative of esoteric Buddhism. And also he and his disciples performed rituals that were not drawn from that tradition, but were instead uh, drawn from kind of established mainstream Chinese Mahayana. So um, Amogavadra had something of a dual identity, I think, or maybe another way of saying this is that his legacy uh, was twofold. Um, because on the one hand, he, he established and he propagated a, a novel teaching that he and only he and his consecrated disciples possessed, right? That is what I'm referring to as esoteric Buddhism. But on the other hand, he was also a monastic Buddhist in the service of the Tang state. And on the basis of that, he and his disciples, they, as I said, performed services that were continuous with established practices um, in China, such as translating texts, performing rituals for the production of merit on behalf of the emperor, and so on and so forth. So following Amogavadra's death, uh, his legacy, his career was consolidated kind of along these two lines, as it were. The first, uh, I think, Amogavadra as an esoteric Buddhism, this legacy was kind of consolidated in hagiographic representations of Amogavadra. Um, and here you see in these sources, Amogavadra is represented as the lineal patriarch of, uh, of a novel or a new teaching. Um, and these were produced by his disciples, or at least by literati who were hired by them. But the other aspect of Amogavadra's kind of legacy or his identity um, 
I played out in the manner in which his textual corpus uh, came to be consolidated. That is, uh, his textual contribution uh, was incorporated into the greater Chinese Buddhist bibliographic tradition. And it was done so as an homogenous collection by later exegetes. Later exegetes, when they uh, thought about Amogavadra, when they represented his text, they tended to think about it or represent it as, as uh, homogenous rather than heterogeneous, right? And, and I think this reflects a, a sort of kind of traditional uh, Chinese bibliographic uh, uh, or doxographic way of organizing the teaching, right? That, that is the association of a teaching with an individual, right? Such that there's an expectation or sometimes a representation that everything that an individual Buddhist does is representative of a single form of Buddhism or a single aspect of Buddhism. Um, but this really isn't the case. Um, but in any case, it was, I think, incorporated into the kind of textual tradition in that way. So, um, so when Amogavadra's textual contribution was incorporated into the uh, Chinese Buddhist canon or into the officially approved catalogs of Buddhist scriptures in the ninth century and, and thereafter, again, it was adopted as a single collection, uh, again, by virtue of the fact that these were all produced by or under the aegis of Amogavadra. And this, this effectively elided the distinction between uh, Amogavadra's esoteric Buddhism and the other Buddhist teachings in his textual corpus. Um, so his texts were, were incorporated into official catalogs according to bibliographic categories that were already established prior to his career. And this also further elided any distinction that he or his disciples might have held between esoteric Buddhism strictly conceived and other Buddhist teachings. And so this was, this was how Moghavadra was represented in text that was produced um, after his death uh, toward the conclusion of the Tang dynasty. And so by the Song dynasty, um, of the, the next major dynastic period in Chinese history, uh, some century uh, following the Tang, um, we find uh, a lot of the sectarian and, and doxographical distinctions that informed early Western studies of sinological Buddhism, right? So a lot of early sinologists used Song sources to understand the Tang dynasty. Um, but uh, I think it's important to, to note that the Song, the Song dynasty sources were themselves predicated on, they were based on uh, sources that are produced following Amogavadra's death uh, in the Tang dynasty, right? So um, uh, put another way, right, I think it's really important just to note that these kind of muddled or kind of dual understanding of Amogavadra and his Buddhism uh, that we find uh, in the Song dynasty and, and I think thereafter, uh, it's a reflection of the sources that the Song dynasty uh, scholiasts and exegetes had to work with, right? On the one hand, they had uh, text, they had material that indicated that Amogavadra was like the centrally important member of a discrete lineage, that he possessed a controlled teaching, right? That he, he represented and possessed a sectarian teaching of Buddhism that nobody else did, or very few people uh, other than him did. But on the other hand, they also have material that indicated that Amogavadra was the translator of a wide assortment of texts, some of which um, were retranslations of earlier texts, and, and some of which were clearly cognate to earlier spell texts or earlier uh, Dharani traditions in China. And so um, I think these posthumous developments uh, resulted in an ambiguous image uh, of Amogavadra, not only for Zanning and other scholars in the Song Dynasty and thereafter, but also, I think, for... Uh, for modern scholars uh, today.
As a final question, I wanted to return to um, something you already addressed earlier in the interview, and that is the scholarly debate that's occurred and in some sense still going on about when or in some cases even if a distinct school of esoteric Buddhism emerged in China. And as you already mentioned, on the one hand, you have these this tradition of sort of Japanese, oftentimes um, denominational scholars sort of, uh, you know, arguing for this sort of a uh, very distinct school of esoteric Buddhism that then um, Fukai brings back to Japan and becomes Shingon. Um, and then on the other hand, maybe people like uh, Robert Scharf, who sort of, you know, suggested that there at this time there just simply was no esoteric Buddhism as some as some sort of distinct tradition. So, um, so like I said, you've already touched on some of this, but just as a final question, I w- wanted to ask you where you see your book in this larger debate, how does this particular book kind of contribute to um, our understanding of that particular issue? Yeah, so I mean, clearly I, 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 I understand uh, esoteric Buddhism to have existed, uh, to put it that way, um, as a, a, a locally recognized form of Buddhism in the Tang Dynasty, contemporary, uh, contemporary with uh, Mughavadra, and as well as uh, following his death. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, this question kind of t- hinges on um, what we mean by esoteric Buddhism. And, 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 and here, this is an argument that doesn't lend itself to audio so much as it lends itself to uh, text, because I want to uh, kind of distinguish between esoteric Buddhism with a lowercase e and esoteric Buddhism with an uppercase e, right? Um, esoteric Buddhism, as, I, as I'm using it, esoteric Buddhism with a lowercase e, uh, that indicates, as in my usage, um, a body of early Mahayana uh, ritual and spell texts that exist in Chinese translation. Um, and and this, this amorphous body of kind of East Asian sources is often understood to stand in some relation to a self-conscious tradition or school that emerged in the second half of the 8th century, right? The, that which I am referring to as esoteric Buddhism with a capital E, right? So esoteric Buddhism with a capital E, uh, referring to the tradition that's... Uh, Perhaps almost invariably identified with uh, Shubhakarashima, Vajrabodhi, and Amogavadra. And, um, and I, th- I think that when, as far as this debate goes, um, you know, I think that recent scholarship uh, on this topic has really been informed by kind of two basic questions. Um, the first of these, and I, I talked about this earlier in the interview, but the first of these is, is whether there is any Chinese evidence that Shubhakarashima, Vajrabodhi, or Amogavadra, or their contemporaries, whether they understood them to represent esoteric Buddhism with a capital E, right? Esoteric Buddhism with a self-consciously distinct and new teaching, right? And the second question I think that motivates contemporary scholarship is what's the relationship between these two esoteric Buddhisms, as I'm as I'm referring to them, right? Esoteric Buddhism with a lowercase e, this long tradition of spell text and practices in China, and esoteric Buddhism with a capital E, esoteric Buddhism as a uh, distinct, uh, discrete school. Um, yeah, and as you, as you point out, some have argued that um, the Buddhist teachings associated with Shabakarasina, Vajrabodhi, and Mogavadra, esoteric Buddhism with a capital E, um, wasn't recognized in China as a distinct teaching, but was instead understood to be continuous with this kind of long tradition of Dharani spell traditions, what I'm referring to as esoteric Buddhism with a lowercase e. But yeah, in my view, um, 
the teaching associated with uh, Shubhakasinga, Vajrabodhi, and Amogavadra, which was established by Amogavadra, I, I, I argue, um, uh, as both an embodied tradition in Tang China and as an object of historical consciousness for later Chinese Buddhists and us uh, also eventually. I, I argue that this was established by Amogavadra, that there is evidence that uh, what I am referring to or what we are referring to as esoteric Buddhism with a capital E was an object of consciousness in the Tang Dynasty from Amogavadra and thereafter. And so I would suggest that uh, the understanding of esoteric Buddhism with a capital E is reflective of, or it's a result ultimately, of what Amogavadra uh, did and was able to do in now, it's really interesting, right, because uh, in terms of this, this sort of, um, I guess, relationship between the lowercase e and uppercase e esoteric Buddhism, as I'm thinking about them, um, we do see in, in, in the uh, Song Dynasty, particularly from Zanning, um, who, who's producing these sort of synaptic, uh, synoptic histories of uh, Buddhism uh, for his imperial patrons. Um, Zanning does have this kind of like dual representation of Amogavadra. On the one hand, he does represent him as uh, kind of presenting this esoteric Buddhism with a capital E, right? That he's a member of a lineage, that he represents a distinct or discrete school. But Zanning also uh, casts Amogavadra as representative of or kind of transmitter of this kind of longer tradition of esoteric Buddhism with a lowercase e, these spell traditions, right? And as I was saying before, this is uh, reflective of kind of like the dual uh, aspect or dual nature of Mogavadra's career, right? On the one hand, he presented uh, a discrete, uh, controlled teaching, esoteric Buddhism with a capital E. But on the other hand, he also translated and performed rituals that were you know, relatively well-known in China time, that is esoteric Buddhism with a lowercase e. And so I think that when scholars have looked at uh, Zanning, for example, and they, they see there that Zanning is casting Amogavadra within this kind of long durée history of spell techniques and spell traditions, Dharani texts, for example, in China. Um, I think that the, the confusion or this ambiguity is, again, kind of rooted in what Amogavadra actually did historically. Um, and, and I think that, and, and, and here maybe I, I kind of push myself out into thin ice, um, but... I think that uh, from a particular perspective, ultimately, um, Zanning's uh, kind of perception of uh, this long durée Dharani spell tradition that uh, goes way back to the origins of Buddhism in China and extends up to Amogabhadra and then beyond in Zanning's representation, and as well as I think the representation of contemporary scholars. I think that this is actually, in, in, to some degree, uh, itself a reflection of Amogavadra's uh, career, insofar as that long durée history uh, somehow leading up to or being related to uh, this discrete uh, school uh, presented by Amogavadra, that perception is, I think, uh, facilitated by, perhaps only uh, possible by virtue of the fact that Amogavadra created the perception of uh, a ritual, uh, kind of spell-based form of Buddhism as a discrete school such that that long history of development and transmission, to kind of use the, the kind of Chinese Buddhist idiom, uh, became visible uh, retroactively 
uh, to later observers in the Song Dynasty, as well as, I think, uh, in the modern dynasty. Great. Well, I will have to encourage listeners to uh, go get a copy of your book and read it in detail, because in this interview, we were really uh, able to skim the surface. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, That's it for today's new book in Buddhist studies. Thank you.